Let me encourage you to keep your Bible open in Ezra chapter 3. And I want you to see this morning where true worship truly begins. The political and legal turmoil in which Westminster is currently embroiled provides ample example of how one person's presentation of events can be seen and interpreted differently by others. Uh, the fact that one person gives an account of something which goes like this does not guarantee that everyone else is rowing in the same direction or is even in the same boat. Now, it's one thing to read about Ezra's take on things as he's presented his record so far. The things that he's said about God's people, that, that list of names that he gave us in chapter 2, the very specific people and roles that were represented there, uh, emphasising that priority of restoring worship in the temple. Well, it's one thing for Ezra to write all that, but what's really going on amongst the people about whom Ezra is writing? That's helpful to know too, isn't it? Is all of this just wishful thinking on Ezra's part? Well, at the close of chapter 2, we're given a strong indication that the people are in complete agreement with Ezra and the emphasis that he has. And we saw that in the generosity of the people as they give according to their ability and in great abundance. And in chapter 3, this theme uh, continues as he displays for us the spiritual priority that really does lie in the heart of these people. And for us today, they are an example of how all of God's people ought to be. And this passage challenges us to be like them in that regard. And so I want to just speak to you this morning under three headings, have through with three points. And here's the first one. That the people were united in obedience to God's word. And you see that particularly in verses 1 to 2. And then again in verses 4 to 5. We see all the people gathering for a very particular purpose and reason. This is a very special month of feasts and thanksgiving and remembrance. And we see there in those verses the words, it is written, as it is written. Now when they first arrived back in Judah, each family heads for home. Nothing unusual or surprising there. They're desperate, no doubt, to find out what state everything is in. Wouldn't you be? Of course you would. Is there anything left after 70 years? Have others moved in and made it their home? Will we be resisted and turned away? Will we find ourselves with nothing save that that we brought with us from Babylon? Well, we can't be sure what all of them found, but for very many, it was no doubt a Herculean task that lay before them to try and rebuild and restore everything. However, as they arrive home, 
And as they no doubt begin to try and put things back in order, there was a date that all of them had circled on their kitchen calendar, if they had a kitchen. The first day of the month of Tishri. It's in their mind. Tishri was and is the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, which equates to the end of September and October. And in fact, as God's providence would have it, today, 29th of September, 2019, is in the Jewish calendar today, the last day of the sixth month. Tomorrow, in the Jewish calendar, is the first day of the seventh month. This important month of feasts begins tomorrow for Jews with Rosh Hashanah, a special day of Sabbath rest. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. You'll find the details there and all the other acts of worship that follow. A week on Wednesday, on the 10th day of Tishri, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then two weeks tomorrow, it will be the 15th day of Tishri. And for the whole week, they'll be celebrating the seven-day-long Feast of Tabernacles, in which they traditionally build little shelters or booths, and they live in them for the week. Why? Well, they're commemorating their deliverance from the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. And it's this very season that Jews now are about to begin tomorrow that the people have fixed in their minds in Ezra chapter 3. They've got it circled on the diary. It won't be too long till people are reminding you how many days till Christmas. And they've been ticking off the days, waiting for the month of Tishri. And all of them, we are told, as one man gather in Jerusalem. As one man. Where are their own building projects up to? What state are their own homes in? It doesn't matter. And not one of them is going to use that as an excuse not to be in Jerusalem on the first of the month. That can all wait. There's something far more important that we must give ourselves to. And their hearts are already there, so getting there in person isn't an issue. And look at verses 2 and 4. As it is written. You see, these people know that this is what God requires. And what God requires cannot be questioned because it is written. Look at the end of verse 5. Everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. This is the heart of these people. They've gathered united as one man, willingly, in obedience to the word of God. Question. 
Why do Christians gather? Slightly more pointed. Why should Christians gather like this? May we go further and ask, why must Christians gather? We may go that far. Why? Because it is written. For Jesus and for Paul, for example, we have it recorded very clearly in Scripture that it was their custom to go every Sabbath to the synagogue, wherever they were, whatever they were doing, they were there. In Scripture, we have it recorded that the New Testament church met together on the first day of the week for worship, for prayer, for instruction in the Word, and they would gather at other times, primarily for prayer, but also for other times of instruction from the apostles in those early days. And it's given as a command in Hebrews that you must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It is written. But notice too how these Old Testament believers came. What spirit they were in when they came. As one man. They were of one mind. They were of one heart. They had a shared conviction and compulsion and determination to be there. They were there willingly, freely. You know, that verse in Hebrews about not being absent when God's people gather, there are basically three ways that you can receive that commandment. And it is a commandment, by the way. It's not just a suggestion. It's a command. There are three ways you can receive it. The first way is to receive it grudgingly, if I must. And in you trudge. Like it's a big stick. And you're being beaten over the head with it. That's one way you could receive it. The second way is to receive it belligerently. And you simply dig your heels in. And you make your excuses as to why you're a special case and you're not going to be there. The third way is to hear that exhortation to always be with the church when they meet for worship and for prayer. And you can be just like these Old Testament believers. But why wouldn't I be there? Where else would I be? What else would I be doing? Willingly, gladly, freely. Of course I'll be there. This is what the Lord's people do. Well, there are your three options. I wonder which one describes you. You see, this is the kind of corporate spirit that Paul longed for in churches. Listen to some of the things he said. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Become complete, mature. Be of good comfort, of one mind, live in peace. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
And one of the most important ways that we do that is in our gathering together as God's people. God's people are seen here, united in obedience to God's word. How could we be anything else? Second thing we see is that these people are being obedient to the word despite the threat. You see that in verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they didn't stop. They carried on. They were obedient to the word despite the threat. When the Jews were defeated and either killed or taken away into exile, the remaining tribes and peoples of what had been the land of Canaan, well, they probably were delighted. A lot more elbow room here now the Jews have gone. We're not going to have them trying to rip down our altars and our shrines and our idols. They had the place to themselves. Maybe some of them thought it was a pity so much has been ruined. It would have been quite nice actually to move into Jerusalem and make it our own. Nevertheless, it's good to be able to spread our wings a little. So when more than 40,000 Jews moved back 70 years later with rumours of more to follow, you can understand that they ruffled a few feathers back in Judah. After all, the last time this group came with, what's his name? What was that guy? Joshua, was he called? Yeah, Joshua. Well, they took over the whole place. We're not going to stand for that again. They, they were the guys who even made the walls of Jericho fall down without even raising a finger. If they think we're going to let that happen this time, and the growing opposition of all of these Gentile peoples will become a significant part of this story, as those of you who know the story understand. But you see, opposition and persecution have always followed God's people, always. And we see in verse 3 that the Jews are very fearful because of the growing threats that are being made against them. God's people are light in darkness. God's people represent godliness in the midst of godlessness. Righteousness surrounded by unrighteousness. And this sinful world will never simply roll over and do what Christians want them to do. They won't. They will fight against you. Because if you're not for God, then you are against God. And to be true to God's word in a world that pours scorn on it is only ever going to bring opposition and persecution. It's what Jesus and the apostles experienced firsthand and it's what they teach us to expect. And it's the truth of God's word that unbelievers despise the most. Fly a rainbow flag from the top of Liverpool Cathedral and the world will love you and applaud you. Well, if that's what you're after, go fly your flag. But stand for the truth and prepare for the onslaught. Are you ready to stand for the truth? 
Are you standing for the truth? Be ready for the onslaught. It'll come. It's coming. It's here. The sinful heart does not want to hear about, will not listen to issues of sin and righteousness. Who do you think you are to dare to suggest that I'm a sinner and that my lifestyle is unacceptable to God? Who, who are you? How dare you suggest that I am so sinful that I need a saviour? I'm not accountable to anyone except myself and I'll do whatever I choose is the world's way. Only the power and grace of God can change a heart like that. And you know that because that's what it took to change yours. But the Lord's people stand firm in obedience to his word, despite the fear of the threat. Notice that God does not make them immune to fear. <laughs> they are frightened, but they're still obedient. How do they do that? Why do they? How can you? Here's an important distinction to understand. True believers do not stand firm in God's word because it's an external force putting them under pressure from the outside. That's how it works out there. Making people conform. Making people too afraid or too embarrassed not to conform so that no one dares to contradict but for the Christian, obedience to God's word isn't like that. The word of God becomes internalized within you, renews your mind, converts your soul. In tandem with the work of God's spirit, the word changes how you think, changes your nature your desires, your ambitions, your priorities. The word of God is not something pressing down on you from the outside. It's something that begins to well up within you on the inside. Because God has put it there. We read of it in the Old Testament as hiding the word in the heart that you might not sin against him. It's become in you part of you his truth in you isn't it isn't it you know it is if you're a Christian it's in you now you know how your conscience increasingly prompts you in line with God's word because it's in you becoming part of you Christ is the truth and he is in you and so you yes even you can stand and be obedient in the face of opposition and persecution just like these Old Testament believers did all those years ago in Christ you must and with Christ in you you will you will obedient to the word of God 
despite the opposition, despite the threat. You, you will stand, Christian. God will enable you. He'll give you everything you need to stand. And thirdly, we see in these people that worship is their heart's desire. We see that through all six verses, but primarily it comes out in verse 2 and it comes out in the final verse 6 that we read. We see that the first thing they begin to do in verse 2 is build the altar so that they can offer burnt offerings. Worship must resume. And we see that actually that began on the first day of the seventh month even though the foundation of the temple had not been laid. We have reinforced for us in verse 6 the lesson that we've been seeing from the very beginning of the book of Ezra. Because most of us are quick to forget it, God won't allow us to. He keeps saying, look, 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 look. Once they all gather in Jerusalem, they do something on day one which probably only needs to take a few hours at the most. They rebuild the altar so that worship may resume. And verse 6 makes it clear that they've built the altar in the midst of all the ruins. They haven't so much as laid the foundation stone for the temple, let alone rebuild it. You can't worship God there like that, you can imagine some people might ask. Well, why not? Now it is true that going forward for the temple to function properly and efficiently, for a growing population to worship in an orderly way, to have the facilities to fulfill all of those Old Testament requirements that God had for his Old Testament people, for all of that to take place throughout the year, the temple does indeed need to be rebuilt. But none of those things are necessary for the heart of their worship to resume. And their heart is to worship. You see, at the heart of worship is confession of our sin in the presence of the one in whom there is no sin. At the heart of our worship is a true sense of our own unworthiness in front of the one who alone is worthy. At the heart of our worship is the sacrifice which acknowledges that God in his grace has permitted another to die in my place so that I may go free. The bloodshed of another which pays the penalty that I deserve and which secures my forgiveness so that I may stand in his presence and worship him. At the heart of our worship is a perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish that the righteousness of another might be imputed to me so that with sins forgiven and with reconciliation and acceptance now before a holy God I, by God's grace, may approach him to worship. Now for God's Old Testament people all that that requires is an altar and a sacrifice and worship may begin. For God's New Testament people, we don't even need the altar anymore. We have everything that we need without any form of building, 
without any form of physical representation whatsoever. The Old Testament sacrifice on the altar portrayed and foreshadowed and pointed forward to a final perfect sacrifice fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all you need. That you once more may worship God. At the heart of worship is the confession of your sin in the presence of the one in whom there is no sin. At the heart of your worship is a true sense of your own unworthiness in front of the one who alone is worthy. At the heart of your worship is the sacrifice which acknowledges that God in his grace has permitted another to die in your place so that you may go free. The bloodshed which pays the penalty that you deserve and which secures your forgiveness. A perfect sacrifice whose sinless life is accounted to you by God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that acceptable sacrifice. And so gathering in his name, on account of all that he has done, you may worship. And that's all you need. And when you have him, you'll find yourself united to the others in obedience to his word. Don't you? And when you have him, you'll discover that in him and through him, you may stand in obedience in the face of any threat. When you have him, worship becomes the desire of your heart. And why on earth would you not meet with Christ's people to worship him? When you have him, that's when true worship truly begins. Heavenly Father, teach us afresh, we pray, what it means to have you and your word first in our heart. That all of our lives, in every part, might be lives of worship and sacrifice to the praise and glory of your great name. Oh Lord, that we might be the faithful, glad, obedient people that you long us to be. For Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.